turn with me now to Revelation chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find this on page 1659. 1659 in your pew Bible. It's also on a large print sheet. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. The Word of God. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, Whenever the living creatures gave glory, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and by thy will they exist and were created. Amen. My friends, this is now part two of our sermon entitled The Vision of God's Throne, The Vision of God's Throne. This message, based on Revelation 4, with the theme, John sees the throne in heaven. John, the apostle, sees the throne in heaven. Now we've already considered the first scene of this book, chapters 1 through 3, 
uh, in terms of the, the exalted Christ being revealed. And then chapters 2 and 3, his messages, his letters to those seven churches in Asia Minor, or what today we would call Turkey. Chapter 4, then, begins the second scene. And the book, as I mentioned last week, unfolds before its audience with curtains rising, with curtains rising every so often to reveal a new setting, a new perspective. John here says, after these things I looked, after the manifestation of the Christ, after his speaking to the churches by means of John, John looked, that is to say, John experienced a vision. And what he saw, as we noted last week, must therefore be interpreted symbolically, not literally. But he saw this vision, and behold, a door opened in heaven. This is one of the clues <clears throat> that a change of scene is about to take place. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I'm a great fan of Columbo, the TV detective. I see a smile or two here. Great show, wasn't it, with Peter Falk? And you remember with Columbo, as, which is a, a mystery, right? Unlike Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot, in terms of Columbo, you, the audience, see ahead of time what has already taken place, and then it's up to the detective to figure it out, right? Well, this, in a sense, God here is about to let John see what really happens. It's kind of like a Columbo episode. A door is opening in heaven. And then we read, And the first voice, which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, that, of course, is the Son of Man, who is, of course, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is showing him and who is telling him this. Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, he says, John says, I was in the Spirit. He was caught up in this ecstatic experience. Doesn't mean that it was irrational. Doesn't mean that at all. But nevertheless, it was an overwhelming experience, to be sure. Now, fundamentally, of course, being in the Spirit means to be led by the Spirit, and he's the one who, who writes the Word of God upon our hearts and so forth. Uh, but it still must have been an overwhelming thing that he was experiencing as he saw this tremendous, this amazing vision here in Revelation 4. And, of course, the first thing we saw then with regard to that was God and his throne. And behold, a throne. A throne. Why a throne, children? Because God is king. Because God rules over all. And everything revolves around him. He is the, if you will, the center of everything, the center of the universe. God the Father is the one being portrayed here. The Holy Spirit, as we've already seen, is represented separately. The Son of God is the one who led, uh, is the one who has led John up into heaven, the Lamb who is beside the throne. But God then, particularly with reference to the Father, is pictured as the one who rules over all creation. Now remember, God himself cannot be physically pictured or 
understood or comprehended in that way. So children, the old, the old see God? No, but he always sees me. Never forget that. Never forget God always sees what you are doing, but we are not able to see God. He is pure spirit. Notice he's represented here by means of these stones, the jasper, which is like a translucent, a quartz. Um, and then the sardius, that is bloody red, which is a symbol of God's justice and God's holiness and his judgments. Remember last week we also talked about the rainbow. The rainbow, but not a seven-colored rainbow. It's, this one's got only one color. The color is emerald, pointing to God's mercy, pointing to new life that is budding forth. For God's children, the storm is over. And the sun, long hidden, is shining through the clouds. There is hope, which is what the rainbow symbolizes. That's why God gave that bow, that rainbow in the sky, to Noah the promise that no longer would the earth be destroyed by water. And so the rainbow then is a promise of God's mercy, and particularly here by being this emerald color. But there are also lightning and thunder from the throne, pointing to the rule of God and his sovereignty and his awesome holiness and his majestic Power. And at the same time, you have the seven lamps of fire, the, the seven spirits of God. doesn't mean that there literally are seven spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. But the point here, by using seven, is it's a number of perfection. And, so those, and they are lamps of fire, which point not only to judgment, but also to purity. And then... And that's not a literal sea. The sea is the big bowl, if you will, sort of like a big swimming pool. So think of a big backyard, so about a huge, a fairly large backyard swimming pool, okay? That, that size with water in it. That was what was used in terms of the washing of the priests before they could go into the Holy of, uh, of Holies, before they could offer sacrifice. So they had to wash as a symbol of cleansing for themselves, a ceremonial cleansing. It's that picture that you have here. But notice what it, what it says here, verse 6. Before that, the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Amazing. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to, um, I don't know if you've ever been to the Biltmore, the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. One of, the, one of these big, beautiful houses built by a, a millionaire, um, uh, Vanderbilt, back oh, 100 or so years ago, and it's now open for touring and so forth. Magnificent place. You go in there, and I mean, all kinds of magnificent things you can see. But I'm also reminded of the the palace at Versailles near Paris, France. And there's a, which again is a magnificent building. And there's one room in particular that is called the Hall of Mirrors. So it's got gold, it's got chandeliers in there, and it's got mirrors all about. 
reflecting the light and the gold. Well, that's sort of the picture that you have here, isn't it? But even more glorious than that. Even more glorious. So you can imagine that here, not, not only do you have this, the, um, the, the throne and the, the jasper stone and the, the sardius stone, and not only do you have that, the emerald rainbow around the throne, not only do you have these 24 elders sitting on, the, on 24 thrones and so forth, not, the seven lamps of fire burning, lightnings and thunderings and voices, but then you have the sea. You have the sea, like crystal, that is reflecting all of these things. It's an amazing scene, is it not? And so God in his throne, and then we come to the creatures around the throne. The creatures around the throne, first of all, 24 elders. Why 24? Why 24? Well, because how many tribes did you have of Israel? You had 12. How many apostles did you have? You had 12. And children, I'm sure you know that 12 plus 12 equals 24. And so what you have here then is the sum of both the Old and the New Testaments. You have both the tribes and the apostles, both ancient Israel and the new Israel, which is the church. And so it is the church as a whole which surrounds the throne. Notice how these elders are described. They are clothed with white garments, white clothing, garments of holiness, which points to the necessity of holiness for believers. Be ye holy, for I am holy, God says. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I would suggest that this holiness is important, first of all, in terms of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that is, say, the good deeds that Christ has done in terms of our salvation, by which we are justified, but also, not only that objective, but also then you have the righteousness, the holiness as it is worked out in our lives. So there are sanctification. And so they are clothed with white garments with golden crowns on their head, showing the honor and authority they have with God and the victory that they have won. And so the church as a whole surrounds the throne and this church it's the church which is seated in dignity and honor and the church which has the victory not because of their own selves but because of Christ who is the victorious one. The 24 elders around the throne but then you have the four living beings. Notice the amazing description here. These four living beings each one is full of eyes. Oh my. Full of eyes to see, to behold, to observe God's works in the earth. But you know what the eyes also do? What do they do for us? 
What do you do when you look at somebody? When you look at someone and you're looking at the face, well, it reveals something of that person's personality, doesn't it? But particularly, how so? When you look into that person's eyes. When you look into that person's eyes. And so it is an emphasis here on the plenty, if we may put it this way, of these four living beings. Each has a different face. One uh, is that the face of a, um, uh, of a lion. Another, uh, the face of a calf or ox. The third, the face of a man. And the fourth, that of a flying eagle. And each has six wings, just like the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. Six wings, with two each flew, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. Now here, most likely, these are the are cherubim, and we don't know a lot about these beings, these angelic beings, or an, or beings that are like the angels at least. We do find something of this in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, excuse me, we see then also from within it, from within this whirlwind, this great cloud, came the likeness of four living creatures, they had the likeness of the man. Each had four faces and each had four wings and so forth. And so you find an amazing description of these beings in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 1. What are those four faces symbolized, by the way? Well, a lion, a lion has strength and boldness, right? A lion has strength and boldness. An ox, service. Man, intelligence. And a flying eagle, swiftness. Like flying through the air. And everywhere, those, as you look at scripture, those things are indeed ascribed to angelic beings, as in Psalm 103, and Daniel chapter 9, and numerous other places. Cherubim are angels guarding God's holy things. Do you remember, children, that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, what did God do when he drove them out of the Garden of Eden? There was that tree of life, and they dare not be allowed to partake of that tree, as an act of high treason and blasphemy. And so what did God do? He put a cherubim with a flaming sword going every which way to make sure that Adam and Eve would not be able to get to that tree of life and partake of that fruit. And so cherubim then are those who are guarding God's holy things, and they are also very powerful. And by the way, let me also say this. These cherubim may very well be representative of or suggestive of 
all living creatures. How many are there? Why, there are four. We talk about the four winds, or we talk about the four corners of the earth. We talk about the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And so also, they are represented living creatures. And notice in verse 11 that they specifically praise God for being the creator. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things, and by thy will they exist and were created. So in this magnificent scene, we see God and his throne. We see the creatures around the throne. And now, thirdly, we hear, we witness the worship around the throne. And first of all, we see this in uh, verse 8 the worship that is offered by the four living beings. We are told here that they rest not day or night. Angels don't have to rest. They don't have to sleep. Okay? And so they rest not day or night. But more than that, they are so caught up in who God is as they surround the throne that there is no time for rest, only for worship. They rest not day or night. What is their praise? Their praise is for God in his holiness. His holiness. Holy, holy, holy. You know what holiness means, children? It means that which is totally different. That which is totally other. That which is separate. That which is set apart. We are to be holy because we're to be set apart for God's service. But God is holy simply because he's God. And he is therefore different from who we are. Psalm 50, we, we read that, uh, you know, people think that, oh, God, God is saying, oh, you think I'm just like you. No. God is not just like us. He is totally transcendent. He is totally other than us. He is outside of creation in terms of his being. Well, at the same time, he condescends to us. He descends to us. He, he also is able to relate to us, particularly by means of his covenant. But this is what they are praising God for being for being thrice holy, 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 holy. He is totally other than we are. That's what we read in Isaiah chapter 6 today. In Isaiah chapter 6. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, angelic armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. We see this also, by the way, in Psalm 99. The emphasis upon the holiness of God in Psalm 99. In Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be shaken. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. 
he is holy. And later, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And the last verse, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. And so the first terms of their praise is that of the holiness of God. But secondly, God's eternal nature. God's eternal nature. Who was and is and is to come. Past, present, future. God has existed from before time began. And he is the one who will always exist. Hard time understanding eternity future. We, we are time-based people. We are, we are here in history in terms of time and space. It's hard for us to understand life that goes on and on and on and on and on. It's hard for us to understand that, children, is it not? But you know what really blows my mind? is to think of eternity past. How is it that God can forever have existed? As creatures, we don't understand that, but we affirm that it is true. And that's what these cherubim are praising God for. The holy God who was and is and is to come, but they are also praising him for his rule. For he is the one who is sitting on the throne. He is, as they say here, the Lord God Almighty. And therefore, they give him glory and honor and thanks, these powerful cherubim. But then the worship around the throne is also offered by the 24 elders. And their worship occurs upon the worship by the cherubim. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever. Then what happens? Then the 24 elders, the church, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. What are they praising him for? They're praising him for his eternal nature. What are they doing in this regard? They are casting their crowns, those golden crowns on their head. They are casting their crowns before him, showing their absolute humility before God and their recognition of absolute dependence upon God. And notice also that they are the ones who also praise him for God's creation. Verse 11 again, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and by Thy will they exist and were created. He has created all things by His will, and God therefore is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Now I have three points of observation, and then two points of application. The first observation is this. Revelation 4 clearly proclaims that God is sovereign over all things. He is the one who is in charge. And this is true whether we talk about grace 
or whether we talk about nature. Whether, that is to say, whether we talk about redemption, the grace of God in, in saving us, or the natural order of things, creation. This is true whether we talk about church or creation. This is true whether we talk about the gospel and science. Revelation 4 clearly proclaims that God is sovereign over all things. And indeed, my friends, if he were not sovereign over all things, then we'd have no hope in terms of our salvation. It's only because God is sovereign. It's only because God is the one who is working out our salvation according to his will. It's only because of that that we can be guaranteed that we do have salvation. And so Revelation 4 clearly proclaims that God is sovereign over all things. Number two, in the eternal ages, creation will be developed to its fullest potential. Man will be restored to his original place as vicegerent or vice-regent of creation. That is to say, as Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden to tend to the garden, to exercise dominion over the earth, over creation, man will be restored to that original place, sin will be eradicated, and all creation will fully praise its creator. No longer will creation groan and travail like a woman in childbirth, which is what creation now is doing. No longer will that be the case. Sin and all of its effects will no longer happen. Why do we die? Because man has sinned. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why do we have pains? We've had a lot of prayers for health today. Why do we have pains? As an effect of sin. Someday, in the new heavens and the new earth, sin will be eliminated. Sin will be no more and creation will be developed to its fullest potential. Thirdly, notice that there is a continuum between the worship offered by men and the worship offered by angels. Now certainly, let me be clear here, we do not want to encourage the painting of angels on ceilings of church buildings. We don't want to do that. We don't want to use that kind of imagery. Nevertheless, we must be aware that angels are present with us in our worship. Isn't that amazing? Remember why women are to wear head, head covering, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, when they come into church? Because of the angels. Because the angels are present. And so there's a continuum then between the worship offered by men, and that which is offered by angels. And so two points of application today. The first is this. Remember the great blessing and privilege of being able to worship children. Remember, never forget the great blessing and privilege of being able to worship. To think. To think that we sinful creatures are allowed to approach God. And to think that we are allowed to present our prayers and our petitions before him. How many of you get to see the President of the United States or the Governor of Georgia? But we get to present 
our concerns before the throne of him who lives forever and ever, the one who was and is and is to come. To think we're allowed to present our prayers and petitions before him and that he hears us and that he answers us and to think that we are allowed the privilege to adore him and to sing his praises. I mean, you know, we, I, I'm sure that, I'm sure that the President of the United States or the Governor of Georgia has sometimes had to um, tolerate musical performances that haven't been very good. Well, by way of comparison, we are such poor, wretched, sinful creatures that it is by God's grace that he accepts our worship and the singing of praise. Indeed, not only does he accept it, the Psalm 22 says he inhabits the praises of Israel. To think that we... You and I are allowed to adore him and to sing his praises, which is why children, you ought to sing out. And older people, you ought to sing out. Don't be muffled. You ought to sing out to think that God is pleased to accept that. To think that we are allowed to hear him declare his will to us. And that we are given a glimpse of his care and concern for us, even by gathering in this time of worship and the victory that he gives to us. My friends, what joy, what pleasure to be able to come into a special presence knowing his love. Why do I encourage you all to come to church? Is it just to hear me preach? No. No. It's because God is here. Amen. And when you neglect worship, when you refuse to show up, you're neglecting God. You're de you are treating God with disrespect. Remember the great blessing and privilege of being able to worship with the figure here of before the throne with the seven spirits the seven lamps of fire, Amen. the emerald yes. rainbow surrounding the throne yes. and the sea of glass reflecting the glory. Yes. Oh, That's what is happening right now that we don't see with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith we see. Yes. And we know that it's true. Yes. And secondly, never forget that worship is to be God-given, not man-made. Never forget that worship is to be God-given, not man-made. See, worship is not to be ginned up by appeals to the senses. You go to some churches today, what do they have? Entertainment. Shows. Videos. Loud rock music. Dramatic presentations. Now, let me just say that 
when you do those things, there are a couple of problems with this. One is that when it's entertainment, you, it's very hard to communicate a message. As I teach in school, if I teach in college, I don't get up and do a song and dance act. I communicate. When you go to your doctor, you don't want him to do a song and dance act to tell you what's wrong with you. You want him to speak straightforwardly to you. But if you have all those things, it's very hard to communicate any effective truth. But more than that, we need to remember that this is not the way that God wants to be worshipped. God wants to be worshipped according to his command. And more than that, we need to remember that worship doesn't need any additions Worship itself is the drama. It's in this back and forth dialogue between God and his people. God speaks to us in his word, the reading of his word, the preaching of his word. How do we respond in the sincere offering up of our prayers and in the joyous singing of praise? Worship itself is the drama. And it's celebration of the very fact of coming into the special presence of God. It's practices being determined by our Lord's command. And it's message being that of the blood-bought reconciliation by means of the cross. And so my friends, be careful. Be careful that you don't miss the point of worship. But particularly, be sure, as we don't forget that worship is God-given, God-derived, God-given, not man-made, be sure that you don't miss the message conveyed during worship, which is that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because indeed, because of all that God has done, particularly because of all that our Lord has done, we say with the church in every age, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and by Thy will they exist and were created. Amen. We please stand for prayer? Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this message and would apply it to each heart. We pray, Lord, that with the eyes of faith, we'd be able to see thee high and lift it up. And that we, O oh Lord, would be able to sing praise to thee and to join the angels in doing so. And indeed, to join the Lord Jesus, who is our older brother, who has already sung the songs on our behalf and sings them today. So, Lord, accept our worship and our praise. For Christ's sake, amen. amen.